Listener Production. Have you introduced your child to your favourite music? The first song that I remember playing my daughter was the night that she was born. I'd had a caesarean and so the two of us were new in the world and didn't really understand what we were doing and she was crying and I couldn't pick her up. So she was in one of those cribs, you know, the plastic cribs, and I put my phone scrambling around half asleep, not sure what I'm doing, found Elton John, put on um, Someone Saved My Life Tonight and put it just because I happened to like that song and stuck it under the crib. And as it was, the vibrations are what got her and got me. And I don't know if you know that song, but it starts off with these big piano chords, do, 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 and it just stopped her and it stopped me. Today on Feed, Play, Love, why parents need to embrace popular music with their kids. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. What kind of music do your kids listen to? What do you listen to together? My children have very eclectic music tastes. Their father has indoctrinated, I mean, sorry, introduced them to musicians like Frank Zappa, Kiss and Tenacious D. I've played them Destiny's Child, Crowded House and Madonna. The kids on their own have discovered Tones and I, Keith Urban and Skillet. As you can see, music is a big part of our family life, which is why I'm intrigued about a new book co-authored by Liz Giuffray called Popular Music and Parenting. Liz is a senior lecturer in communication at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a mum of two. Hi, Liz. How are you? Good, Chevy. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, I suppose we should start with definitions because, you know, we all have different ideas of things. How do you define popular music? Because my husband would argue that Frank Zappa isn't popular. (laughs) And I would too, actually, let's be honest. No, we'll see. So I come at this as a popular music academic. The definition of popular music really is is music for pleasure. So if you think about it, not in terms of how much it's sold or, you know, whether we agree or disagree, high art, low art, it's, it's music that we listen to not for ritual, say. So it's different to, say, music that you might put on for a ceremony or music that you might put on for any kind of, uh, uh, you know, educational purpose or anything. It's not, you know, music you can listen to to learn how to read and write and all the stuff. It's music for pleasure. And I guess it's a little bit different too when people talk about popular music. They mean music that has got quite low barriers to entry. So it's music that, you know, you can hear on the radio really easily, you can get into easily. A lot of people put it um, against high art music or music that you have to pay a lot of money or supposedly know a lot about to kind of get, you know. So people might think about symphonies or opera or something like that, which arguably I would say is still popular, yes, you know, yes. but that's that's where I'm working. Music for pleasure. Okay. I know music is a big part of your life, yeah. but tell me what role does it play in your life as a mother? Well, music is part of my life, which means, and motherhood is part of my life, as is all my caring roles. You know, I'm also an auntie and a godmother, as we all are. And, you know, and I think it's not just parents who use music and engage music with kids. And so as much as it is of my life, it is my kid's life. You know, so I use music as a coping mechanism in particular when things are really stressful. And so that's what my kids do too. You know, we do silly things like when tantrums are breaking out, Harry Styles comes out and we treat people with kindness. We have a sing and we have a dance. You know what I mean? And and I used to use music when those hard times in the middle of the night to kind of 
break the tension, like I mentioned to you before, but also silly things, you know. So if, if me and the kids are, if the tension's rising a little bit at the moment in our house, we go back to a bit of uh, bit of 80s glory and we start, she drives me crazy, like <laughs> those types of things. So we really use music as communication tools, but also it's just on all the yeah. time. You know what I mean? So depending on who's in charge of whatever device it is at the time, they get to choose and then it all kind of bleeds in, you know what I mean? And it, it, it is for pleasure. I mean, of course, it's there for other things as well and that all kind of comes in and comes out, but it's entertainment, you know. It's a way of connecting with each other and building relationships. Okay, let's talk about that connection and the building of relationships. Most people probably think of music as being reasonably ephemeral, like it's in and it's out, it's just on in the background. How do you see music bringing families together? Well, I think even that being on in the background is how it does it. You know what I mean? Because we all have that situation where we can hear a song somewhere, could be in the shopping centre, could be anywhere, and it reminds you of somebody or it reminds you of a place, you know, or a time. And I think that's what we do with our kids too. And sometimes that happens consciously. You might want to pick a song and play it and say, this was granny's favourite song or this was grandpa's favourite song or this is the song that me and daddy got married to or a song might just come on that for whatever reason sparks people's interest and then we talk about it, we play on it and it could be something really kind of targeted. It's a lot of hot potato that goes on in our house. Um, <laughs> and hilariously when I caught my my then not quite two-year-old asking Siri for hot potato and oh. she didn't know because she doesn't know that hot potato is hot potato. She didn't understand, so they couldn't talk to each other. But, you know, then you kind of build these relationships again based on the experiences you have with music, you know. So Jigabug is a big song in our house at the moment, which is actually Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. But it's Jigabug because it starts a Jigabug. So, you know, we're just yeah. building all of those relationships just with the music that's around. Talk to me about the feeling of, introducing your child to like your favorite song from when you were a teenager or even as an adult. Talk to me about who that artist was and what that experience was like. When, when you know, they're, they're old enough and their brains are developed enough that they can express how they feel listening to it. Well, I mean, I don't know that, I, I don't know that there's ever a best time for that because we all relate in different ways. I've had a devastating moment a couple of devastating moments because when I was growing up, the Muppets meant so much to me. And <laughs> and I just, you know, and you can laugh, but if you get it, you get it, right? Um, and I've done this with, so I've got cousins who are 20 years younger than me, so they were kind of, you know, and I was really involved in helping bring them up and, you know, godchildren and friends and whatever. Always use the Muppets. Manamana has been my love language, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. and I've, I've had a oh, pretty no. good track record. I can see where Until this is my going. kids came, yeah. <laughs> And then it was like, no. And it's like they could feel my desire and my want for them to love it. Yes, you know? yes. But then I had a really happy moment with my son when he was little, little, and he was quite little when the first lockdowns came down and everything. And we're in that age where we're trying to work out what's the magic source, the special source that's going to help get him to sleep. And it was uh, Crowded House is my favourite band of all time. I remember when I fell in love with Neil Finn at six years old and, you know, he was doing a lot of broadcasts during lockdown. And I had these very vivid memories of listening to him on the other side of the world, just listening over the phone. And that was what was calming my son, my infant son. And again, I don't know if it was because it was calming me and I was feeding him at the time. And so it's just 
Maybe it's just the mechanics, the bodily mechanics of it all, you know. Maybe it's because, I don't know, he's a little people pleaser or maybe he's just got excellent taste. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with the latter. Well, yes, yes. But, you know, and it doesn't mean that we always have to like the same thing. And I, you probably notice this yourself too with your kids. A big thing about music is when you get into that, those teenage years is that's your act of rebellion. You know, you can't like mum and dad's music. That's, that's mum and dad's music. Forget that, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. They're going to hate it because it's yours. You know what I yeah, mean? Just yeah. because that's what you do at that stage well, of life. My kids are in trouble then because we have such a wide range of music. They'll find something. They'll they will find, find something. Yeah. Um, I, but that is also very interesting to me, like that, you know, that definition. We have our children at the moment in that beautiful space where they think we're the best things ever and they absorb the things that we share with them. And that's what I find really interesting with my own family because my husband is a complete music snob, he a self-confessed music snob. Um, Mine too. Okay. Yeah. So then I can see, you know, the kids will listen to Pink Floyd and then they're listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, and then my son would love um, Starship, We Built This City, you know, and it would drive my husband mad. But I thought... I hate that kind of barrier to enjoyment of music. I hate that kind of, <laughs> I love my husband and don't like the snobbery. And so it's really nice to see that kids just, they have, they just love music because they love music. Yeah, but that's not to say that they love everything. And no, as you know, right. teeny tiny kids in particular will tell you, it's not Hot Potato today. <laughs> or it's not that version of Hot Potato. You know what I mean? So it's yes. not that, and I think, what and what I'm interested in is that kind of, that position that popular music has, as opposed to education or those other things that we use music for, just informing relationships and really genuine kind of part of our culture. Yeah. So there will be things that we listen to because it's daddy's turn and this is what daddy likes. And even if you don't like it, it's because daddy likes it. That's why we're listening to it because we want daddy to have his turn in the same way that when it's your turn, you can listen to what you like. And they'll often say to me, do you like this song? I'm like, well, do you like it? If you like it, I like it. It reminds me of you. Would I listen to it without you? Maybe not, but <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think that that's what we do throughout our lives as well. You know, we associate certain songs and certain things with the people that we love that mean something to us. And even if on its own, we might hate a particular song, really, if it's become associated with a particular person, it's got a meaning for us. And that's also what we transfer. We do it in so many other ways, you know, the minute kids are born, let's sign them up to a particular football team or let's get them involved in other parts of our culture. And what I'm interested in is how popular music is our culture. It's what we do. We're used to doing it, say, for music for ritual. We understand that we might teach children a national anthem or a folk song or a Christmas carol. But what about those other things? What about saying, you know, let's listen to Over the Rainbow because that was Nana's favourite song and Nana, my Nana was actually Granny's mum. And now she, you know, like all, you won't know her, but this is a song she loved, you know. So yeah. there's all those ways that music, and it just kind of happens, you know, but there's all those ways that music gives us those connections and there aren't barriers to entry. You know, pick up any device and you can ask Siwi. To play it for you, you know. Siwi's <laughs> going, oh, you're so cute. I know I'm AI, but I'm just going to go along with it. Um, okay, well, let's talk about something you mentioned there from a different perspective. Your children might say, do you like this song? And you say, well, if you like this song, I like this song. I have two words for you. Baby shark. Do, 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 do. Yeah, I'm there. What do you say to parents who 
experience a certain level of pain with certain songs that their children love. <laughs> well, again, it's lean right in. It's going to happen. <laughs> but, but again, that's part of the human condition, right? Mm. Like there are certain songs anywhere that you might hear and think, I'm going to turn off the radio. I can't listen to that song. And part of the thing with Baby Shark is the repetition of it. But then I would argue that we've all been through that stage in our life where we loved a song so much we had to hear it again. And that kind of again, again, sometimes even before it's finished is a thing that you might think on toddlers on repeat, you know, is really bad. But go back to your 15-year-old self. Think about how many, depending on your age, how many cast singles, how many CDs, <laughs> how many things we wore out because we had to hear it again. REM, everybody hurts. <sighs> you oh. know, and but and that that's also too part of the, I mean, the academic literature around popular music. There was a very grumpy man called Adorno who <laughs> said basically popular music is built for repetition and that's what makes it simplistic. And he actually used childlike as, you know, to, to denigrate it and, and as, yeah. uh, to be derogatory. But actually the repetition of it is the pleasure of it and it's mm. also the comfort of it and the ritual of it, you know, in the same way that we joke about a 15-year-old, I think about, you know, as we've all been, the darkest times in our lives when we think I need to hear a song to make me feel a certain way or and the best times in our lives when we're at weddings and we want to hear a certain song to evoke certain things or the other end at a funeral where you want, you know, popular music's with us at the most important times in our lives and often they're not the times to hear a new track. They're the times to hear again that song that you've heard that many times that you want to take you to the place that you need it to take you. So, yeah, okay, if it's Baby Shark, it's Baby Shark. <laughs> and, I mean, the advantage of Baby Shark, I've got a wonderful colleague um, at University of Sydney who's a musicologist who talks about how that song's actually built on sort of old honky-tonk, you know what I mean, and it's got a really clever structure. So you know what I mean. It's not just a happy accident that that works. That's actually been engineered really beautifully, which is the same thing for the Wiggles, for the composers of Bluey, all of those things, you know. They're actually really, they're put together in, a, in quite a sophisticated way, even though you might think, oh, nothing. You know what I mean? So my podcast has lived alongside Kindling Kids Radio for as long as we've been around, and that was that's a kids' music station. When it first came out, it was all about mapping the rhythms of a child's day. And it certainly worked with my family, you know, the upbeat music in the morning and children music kind of around lunchtime and then some really great classics at witching hour. So it worked really well. But what they also did there, they've always had a really passionate belief in supporting music for kids. But when I say that, it's not necessarily the wiggles or educational music that although that might play a part in it there's also now there seems to be this wave of music that is directed at kids more so in their message or what they're singing not necessarily in the style yeah. so I'm wondering how you come at that have you seen that sort of change where I know you're saying we should all be able to enjoy popular music but now it seems like there's popular music that's made specifically for children but is more enjoyable for adults. Yeah, look, and uh, certainly there's markets that have opened up. In the book, one of the controversial things that I say um, is there's no such thing as children's music. I really just think there's music and we jump in and jump out. But obviously that's not to say there aren't target audiences. And children's music obviously exists as a category, as a genre. People choose it because they want to be able to 
choose what's appropriate for their child and what their tastes are and that what their tolerances are at the time, you know. So certain things like you might not, some kids might love heavy, heavy metal. Others might just find the volume and the timbre of it too much. You know mm. what I mean? So you want to be able to make those choices. You also want to be able to make choices around language, obviously. I can see the point of all that. I think, um, again, though, when you're saying it's targeted to the adults as well, that's also part of the reason why there is no such thing as children's music because no child is sitting on their own putting this thing together. No child is putting this thing together with no adult assistance. Even my little then near two-year-old asking Siri to play Hot Potato, if I hadn't set up the internet, if I hadn't set up Siri, if I haven't come in to intervene in the tantrum and then fix it, he can't. He can't do it on his own. So there's always been that appeal to the adult in the room, the carer, whatever. And if they hate it, and again, to use your example of Baby Shark, I'm sure there's lots of parents that, that just cut off Baby Shark well before the kids were into it. We're <laughs> just like, I can't do that <laughs> anymore. Be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's always been that need to appeal to the parents. And if you think about the ones that have really stuck, part of the reasons why the Muppets were so big for me was because it was clearly had that dual, you know, that dual audience Again, why the Wiggles have done so well is because they've been able to understand. And as you know, it's not always just in the recordings. It's when you go to the concerts. There's that little bit for the parents as well as for the children. Play school, do it. You know, the best of the best kind of targeted for children, if you like, know that there's an adult there that they have to convince they have to stop being bored, but they also pragmatically have to convince to buy the thing in the first place, <laughs> to press play, to enable it, you know, to give it its blessing. So I think that's always been the case. Liz, I love talking to you about this and I love how much you've thought about it because it is so important. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Liz Jufray. She's a senior lecturer in communication at UTS, Sydney, and she's a co-author with Shelley Brunt of Popular Music and Parenting. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love, a listener original podcast. If there's something you'd like to learn more about, email me at feedplaylove at sca.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. For more great kids and parenting podcasts, check out the listener app and don't forget to follow us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.